0: This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education, which is committed to educating a generation of solutionaries, students, and changemakers able to think systematically and act compassionately to solve the challenges of our time. The Institute for Humane Education offers award-winning free resources for educators, online professional development, and online graduate programs with Antioch University. Learn more by visiting edcuration.com and searching the Institute for Humane Education or use the links in the episode notes. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements, resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning. In September of 2021, a massive multinational study led by researchers at the University of Bath in England, surveyed 10,000 16 to 25 year olds in 10 different countries, including the United States, and asked how they felt about climate change. Almost 60% said they felt very or extremely worried and more than half said they felt afraid, sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, and or guilty. Today, we're hearing from two guests about how to take the lessons we've learned and the resources generated from the COVID-19 health crisis and apply them as we face our global climate crisis. Karen Pow, our first guest, has over 30 years of experience as an education industry expert and is the CEO of Ten Strands, a California-based nonprofit focused on strengthening the partnerships and strategies that will bring environmental literacy to all California's K-12 students. To that same end, Karen is also the project director for the California Environmental Literacy Initiative. I asked her to share a little bit about the work of Tim Strands.
1: We just thought, how can we be helpful initially? But we've come to think of ourselves as a backbone organization, if you take the collective impact model, or we even think of ourselves as somehow catalyzing the field. And so we deliberately don't do things that others do well like Craig and his team and many other partners that we work with. But we sort of sit between state agencies like the Department of Ed, the EPA, Natural Resources, and then the System of Support for Education in California, which is counties, districts and schools. And then obviously we have a very rich um, non-formal provider community of environmental ed experiences. So we sort of sit between all of those. We're, we're not any of those things. We sit between all of those just to see what we can do to, to catalyze the field. We've been busy in this last nine plus years. But the three primary things that we're focused on now is we, um, we're backbone support. We have been for some time to the California Environmental Literacy Initiative. And that is um, that's an initiative that was set up to implement the ideas in our state blueprint for environmental literacy. And we started as the backbone for that about six years ago. We're in our seventh year. Also, obviously, the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative, that was more recent. That was two years ago, like two years ago, almost. Uh, In two weeks, it'll be two years uh, since we launched that. And then another project that we're working on that we just recently launched is called the um, Climate Change and Environmental Justice Programme. And that's that's a project that we launched with state money to create Curricular resources for California stud- students focused on climate change and environmental justice. So, like those are the three big things the California Environmental Literacy Initiative, the National COVID 19 Outdoor Learning Initiative, and the um, Climate Change and Environmental Justice Program.
0: Okay. And so, when you say you're the backbone mm-hmm. in terms of providing curriculum, providing research, and providing connections, it sounds like, am I understanding?
1: And raising money. And raising, so, money. Okay. Ra- raising money
0: to get things moving. 10 Strands was one of four organizations that launched the COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative. You heard from Andra Yagoyan from San Mateo County two weeks ago, and you'll hear from Sharon Ganson-Danks at Green Schoolyards in two weeks from now. But joining Karen today is the fourth partner, Craig Strang, the Associate Director of Lawrence Hall of Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He leads the Learning and Teaching Group, which focuses on building capacity to improve science, ocean, and environmental literacy in formal and informal education systems nationally and internationally. He's the founding director of Mare Marine Activities Resources and Education, and was the lead principal investigator of the NSF Center for Ocean Sciences Education Excellence. His list of roles and accomplishments goes on for a really long time. And every part of that list is focused on equity and justice and enhancing teaching and learning in the sciences.
2: Lawrence Hall of Science is the public science center of the University of California at Berkeley. So we have a public science center, a museum that's open to the public. Um, We deliver programs for school groups and families that come through the door and we have summer camps and a lot of direct service to our local community. And because we're part of the University of California and for a lot of other reasons, um, we also develop a lot of other resources and programs and approaches that serve a national and international community um, to improve science and math education broadly. So, We design instructional materials for kindergarten through 12th grade, science and math and environmental um, education materials. that are used all over the country. Um, We figure that about one in five kids in the United States use a science curriculum that was developed at the Lawrence Hall of Science. We also conduct education research to try and learn more about what works and how people learn. And then translate that that research into tools and strategies and programs and approaches that really embody the research and improve effectiveness throughout the whole field. We do some technology development, some development of educational technology strategies, and we also design professional learning programs and approaches to professional learning for both education leaders within the K-12 system and education leaders in the out-of-school, informal, non-formal, outdoor, environmental education space as well. And um, so we're constantly kind of trying to figure out better ways of helping people to learn about science and then sharing those ways on a large scale throughout the country and helping organizations and systems to improve. And we have a very particular kind of philosophy about science learning, that the reason why we think science is important is to help kids solve problems, improve their lives and communities and make the world a better place.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, so it really makes sense then that you and your colleagues uh, responded to the COVID pandemic with this attitude of let's dive in and problem solve and see how we can turn this into an opportunity which you did you all started the um the covid-19 outdoor learning initiative so whose idea was that <laughs> it, it was it, it was
1: my idea no <laughs> no no wait it was my idea
2: <laughs> no it was neither of our ideas <laughs> it
1: was neither of our ideas <laughs> so um who I called we, who yeah yeah we we kind of all, so late-ish one night, we got an email from a colleague who works over at San Francisco Unified School District. Her name's Vanessa Carter. She's the Environmental Literacy Coordinator. She was watching this sort of rush to distance learning. And at the same time, she was aware of some work that Craig's team was doing. And she put two do- you know, connected two dots. And she said, what if we took all of that expertise that knows how to teach outdoors and paired them up with teachers to encourage teachers to take kids outdoors um, as an antidote to all of the ways in which we know distance learning isn't going to work for most kids especially kids that are most vulnerable for lots of different reasons so it kind of came out of that she wrote to basically the four founding uh, partners so Lawrence Hall, 10 Strands, San Mateo County Office of Ed, and Green School Yards America.
0: I love it that somebody was looking at what was happening and saying, might there be a different response? Right. right. That That right. isn't going to feel like
1: death. Right, right, right. I mean, she's very, very smart. And, you know, and she called people she knew and she called people who could understand the different bits of it. Sharon Danks at Green School Yards America suggested how how about putting on a webinar to see if other people in addition to us might be interested in this and on the 4th of june 2020 and a thousand people showed up wow yeah and so and so that was really what launched it craig would you add anything
2: you know we were all seeing all the pieces and she kind of put it together um in a very simple and elegant way that there. Of thousands of environmental and outdoor educators being laid off right now because all their sites are shut down, and there are all these schools that are working with kids remotely because they don't have the capacity to work with them safely outdoors.
0: So that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, right? How did you guys zero in on what is going to be our mission here, actually, and what will be the components of of the structure or what what we're going to provide?
2: Under whatever normal is, under normal circumstances, this probably would have taken us a year or two to put together and strategize and argue and vie for position um, and make sure our organizations got adequately acknowledged and credited and uh, covered copyright issues and things like that. In this context, we were really in crisis response. I mean, it felt like we were first responders and I don't want to be overdramatic or melodramatic about, you know, people who really save lives, but, but this was a crisis that kids were being shut out of schools and sent home to unsafe places For sure. and losing whatever opportunity they had to learn and to be in community with their peers and with caring adults. And so we came together very quickly. And Put aside all those other issues and we're like, okay, who's who can stand up here? Ten strands convene Green School Yards of America you got a website that we can build off of you got some resources there already Let's can we use your website done? Okay, Lawrence Hall of Science you think about learning and teaching stuff. Okay, well can you lead that part and San Mateo County Office of Education you like you have schools that are actually potential places that could be trying this stuff out and innovating. Okay. You do that. And so the roles emerged very quickly and very agreeably. And I think we were really, um, highly motivated to make something work quickly.
0: And a big part of your motivation was to address the inequities that were being exacerbated by the situation with, with distance learning.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, We didn't really have data initially, but we we got data later and there's even more data now. But And we were mostly looking at California, but we knew if it was happening in California, it was happening elsewhere too. But there were some large number of kids, like maybe I think it was like close to a million kids who early on in the pandemic didn't have access to a device (laughs) where they could even do distance learning and then there was something like 800,000 or something like that that didn't have reliable access to the internet so reliable broadband access just that alone like that simple fact alone would have prevented a lot of kids from participating and school districts were seeing you know kids just kind of disappear you know initially we just thought hey what if we put some a few like a book together like the equivalent of a book together and like three big categories like very quickly emerged one was you know how do you move fast to create um spaces outside you know where you don't have years to think about it but in the way that restaurants did where they quickly very quickly moved outside how do you do it and create these semi-permanent structures or permanent structures that are safe and then craig's and his colleagues expertise but many others as well in this sort of learning and teaching space and then the other main piece because it was COVID, was thinking about um, health and and not just health at the level of safety from covid but health at the level of, sort of well-being and so we ended up working with physicians who um, and and pedagogy experts who sort of understood what was at play there and and ground truthing all of that through our relationship with san mateo was really important because they were in touch with districts and they were in touch with schools and they knew what was sort of bubbling up to attend to. What we've ended up creating is this vast library. There's like over 200 resources in the library um, across um, many chapters.
0: You'll find a vast library of resources for educational leaders and students at all levels at the COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative website. Links are in the episode notes, along with more support from today's sponsor, the Institute for Humane Education. This is Zoe Weil, president of the Institute for Humane Education and author of The World Becomes What We Teach, which has become an Amazon number one bestseller in the philosophy and social aspects of education. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At IHE, we believe that a just, healthy, and peaceful world is possible, and the most powerful way to build such a future is to prepare a generation of solutionaries. Solutionaries are able to see past polarized thinking, look at problems systemically, and use academic skills to collaboratively solve real world problems in their communities and world. We offer educators free resources to integrate the solutionary framework into classrooms, along with professional development opportunities. We also offer online graduate programs with Antioch University. While you're focused on humane education, This seems like the moment to have Craig share some of the research about how remote learning magnified inequities for a huge number of students.
2: We all could see what was coming um, in terms of the inequity. The first that I saw in terms of documentation and evidence was in, in September of 2020. There was a report that showed that Um, Students in lower-income schools had much higher, quote, truancy rates during uh, remote learning, that they either weren't showing up or they weren't submitting assignments online. And why might that have been? Well, students that are in lower-income schools had a much less likely chance of having live instruction during remote learning meaning that their teachers were not teaching synchronously in low-income schools. Then another month or two later, the California study came out that Karen just mentioned, showing that 1.8 million kids in California did not have access to high-speed internet. That maybe had something to do why they were truant. And That included 25% of all the Black students in the state and 33% of all the Latinx and Native American students in the state. 600,000 kids did not have a device at home to participate, even if they had broadband. In the next school year, 2020, 2021, um, Black and Latinx students were 20% less likely to have in-person school open than white students. Much higher percentage of schools that serve white kids came back for in-person learning. Um, And schools with black and brown students were much more likely to stay closed throughout that entire school year, 2020 to 2021. In schools that opened for in-person learning, kids lost about 20% of the learning that takes place in a normal school year in schools that were mostly closed and doing remote learning, kids lost 50%. So, and again, all those, most of those kids that lost the 50% were students of color. So this just went on and on and on. And what we predicted and what was true was that remote learning was a massive failure. Yeah. And the antidote, To remote learning was not spending $10 million to repair your HVAC system and build plexiglass shields between kids. The antidote was invite your kids to come back to school for free and take them outside and sit under a tree and read and do math and study the outdoors. Right. And that could have happened, and it did happen in some places, but it could have happened on a large scale. And completely interrupted those inequities,
0: but it did happen um, at a <laughs> maybe a larger scale than than maybe would have been expected. Um, was that because of the webinar?
2: The webinar was just the beginning. Right. You know, that okay. we had those thousand people, and then those many hundreds of those thousand people agreed to work in working groups to develop the library of resources that are now available for free on, the, on on our website, the National COVID Outdoor Learning Initiative website. Okay. So it was highly productive. There was
1: 10 working groups and there was 11 because the, the 11th was a community of practice. And um, so it was, we deliberately set it up so that you know we were active at trying out what was being produced mm-hmm. <laughs> as it was being produced and that community of practice still goes there, there've been 50 sessions or 60 sessions something like that the second anniversary of it is coming up next tuesday
0: i was wondering craig as you were talking about all the the studies and the research around the inequities that emerged those are those were pretty much focused on california
2: the only one that was california was the one about uh, limited access to High-speed internet and devices. Okay, all of the but other data that I referred to um, is was national. All,
0: was all national, and probably safe to assume that there would be similar reports in you know other parts of the world as well. But definitely nationwide. Um, so describe for our listeners, if you would. You've you've referred to it several times, but if someone were to go to the website, which they will find in the episode notes of of this podcast, what what are all the different kinds of resources that an educator will go there and get and see and have
1: access to? It's a library. It's broadly organized around those three structures I mentioned earlier of um, designing spaces for outdoor learning and then learning and teaching Resources for learning and teaching in those spaces, and then considerations for student health and well-being. So, um, for example, there's the health benefits. There's teaching and learning outdoors. There's a school gardens chapter, school schoolyard play and social spaces chapter, schoolyard design and infrastructure, and policy guidance and and funding, and then. We've got wraparound structures like the community of practice, but also case studies um, showing what people were able to do in different geographies, whether it was the weather was hot or whether the weather was cold or whether the weather was windy or whether <laughs> the weather was wet. Snowing, right? so we, yeah. I mean yeah, right, we Colorado, we would have been buried in snow during right. that time. And so stuff. we've got all of those examples.
2: There were dozens and dozens of landscape architects who volunteered time. To make design templates for schools and then volunteered to work with schools to do their own custom designs. Um, so everything from building an outdoor classroom to where to put shade structures to where to how to use hay bales to mark off areas, you know, all that at the kind of facilities site level, their curriculum sequences and professional learning modules for teachers to help them learn outdoor to teach outdoors Um, tying outdoor learning to adopted science curriculum that's being used in the classroom there's guidance for how to change your school schedule to accommodate different certain number of classes being outdoors at various times during the day there's guidance for how to manage lunch outdoors. And I believe
0: the hope is now that we are moving out or moving forward a little bit, <laughs> at least from the pandemic crisis, that this initiative can continue to impact educational spaces and address the bigger issue of environmental learning and,
1: and our environmental crisis. That's right. So we we met you because we spoke at South by Southwest and we wanted to talk about the body of work, but we also wanted to talk about, you know, how do you take this body of work and how do you um, pivot, I suppose, from a um, COVID response to a climate response. And actually we just added a new major chapter to the library called Living Schoolyards and Climate Resilience. So thinking about the way schoolyards are designed, for example, In places that um, are hot, it's often the case that the trees on campuses are there for curb appeal, and they're shading the cars. They're shading the teachers' cars on the street, (laughs) and they're not shading the kids on the campuses. And then, obviously, schoolyards as learning laboratories for all the types of learning and teaching that that, that Craig was talking about, including learning about climate change and its and its impacts. Are you seeing that
0: happen? Are you seeing momentum towards systemic change in terms of climate-friendly schools coming out of this COVID initiative?
1: Maybe coming out of this particular initiative, but certainly there's more conversation about what you just referenced than at any time before. There's a national initiative right now out of the Aspen Institute, and they've just published a report on um, K-12 climate change education. California is investing $6 million to create curricular resources focused on climate change and environmental justice. Five years ago, I certainly didn't feel it in the way that I do now. Um, COP26 was just in Glasgow at the end of last year, and lots of different ministries of education from all over the world um showed up and talked about the ways in which they were thinking about K-12 education with respect to, to, to climate change and its impacts. There's a lot of people stepping forward and thinking about infrastructure, thinking about school buildings and school grounds. We have a colleague that we've just really started to work with called Jonathan Klein, who runs an organization called Undaunted K-12. Um, you might want to interview him sometime because he's really trying to focus on um you know, if if Craig and I really are mostly interested in teaching and learning, then Jonathan is mostly interested in thinking about um, school buildings and grounds with respect to to, to climate change. What advice
0: would the t- would either of you have for, say, the the parent listening or the teacher listening for how to encourage educational leaders and legislators to prioritize this?
2: I think these. Changes and innovations can start from a variety of different places.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so anyone who is concerned and caring about these issues, about the health of kids, about climate change, um, about learning, can start this process. School systems are complicated and hard to navigate. So don't give up, like be bold, speak up, speak up more than once and look for help. Um, You don't have to do this alone. You can go straight to the library for the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative, and there are 250, 200 resources there. Maybe so many that it would be helpful to have a conversation first and have one of us help you find what you're looking for. But but even if you're ambitious, you could go on the website yourself and and find a lot of information that's well-documented, Um, backed up by research, and could create a compelling argument to a school leader or a school board member uh, to help you make your case.
0: Okay, thanks. Do you have anything to add,
1: Karen, that you would encourage people with? On the climate side, on the shift to climate, a good number of school boards in partnership with stakeholders within their communities like the PTA, um, like the Sierra Club, um, are passing board resolutions focused on protecting and educating children um, about um, climate change. LAUSD, um, a very large USD, over 600,000 kids within that system, um, recently passed a bold board resolution. Focused on climate change and its impacts, the benefits of outdoor learning, um, creating resources for teachers, so there's a real there's a real movement beginning around all of this. And so, just even connecting to your local school board and finding out if they're doing anything, and looking at some model board resolutions from other places to inspire you to take action in your place is another way of going about it. Yeah. Okay.
0: Thanks for that. Do either of you have kind of a favorite success story that emerged out of the movement from a specific school that you either worked with or that you collaborated with um, through the network?
2: All of our favorite example is Portland, Maine, uh, which very quickly responded to the pandemic and mobilized parents and business leaders in their town and uh, over the summer of 2020 built outdoor classrooms in every school in their school district and uh, starting in September had every kid back at school in person and mostly outdoors and went all the way through the winter in Portland, Maine in the snow with outdoor learning and so that's a sort of a unique and uniquely successful story. If they can do it in Portland, Maine, we should be able to do it in Central California. From here in California is Newark Unified School District, Newark, California. Um, And they started working with us also early in the pandemic and were never able to really bring kids back for outdoor learning in the middle of the crisis of the pandemic. But were undaunted, deep county word, um, and kept going with their environmental literacy planning and their outdoor learning planning to g- go beyond the pandemic. And um, they now have one whole school that is totally dedicated to environmental and outdoor learning as a model for the rest of the district. Every grade um, in every school across the district will have a signature outdoor learning experience every year that's tied to a unit of study. And nearly every school um, has or is about to have a school garden. So they started off kind of in, you know, crisis response and realized that they were not so nimble, but they weren't giving up. And they've really built systems and structures um, that are going to last for a long time now.
0: So good. So encouraging. I can imagine, and maybe you're hearing this from schools, that given the opportunity to learn outside that the kids are reluctant now to come back indoors.
1: Yeah, why not, right? I mean, my my favorite little story includes kids. We were interviewing uh, the adults that were responsible for making all of these changes at a school in Oakland, a Park Day school in Oakland. And at the end of the interview, much like what we're doing now, three kids came in to the room. And so I asked them, you know, how how it's been for them, you know. And one little girl said, you know, it was cold, you know. And I said, was that a problem? She said, no, we put our coats on. (laughs) I was so so cute like practical you know of course it's not a problem we just put our coats we on, our on. <laughs> right. it's
0: not like there's not a solution
1: right right
0: exactly I so loved the way that you put it Karen when you said that we're taking this COVID response and we're using it as a pivot mm-hmm. to a climate response and I'm wondering if either of you can can help us summarize what have we learned about the way that we were able to come together that can inform us as we move forward
2: we learned that we're awesome that we can come together as a community and move mountains and be highly productive and respond quickly and be nimble we can mobilize thousands of volunteers to generate huge resources We even generated unprecedented media coverage. Karen and I were on the PBS NewsHour talking about outdoor learning as a remedy to the pandemic. We learned that we can do a lot in a short period of time and that it's not nearly enough. We've created, the it's so easy and we've created these resources and it's not expensive it makes perfect sense it's logical it's common sense why can't we accomplish this everybody agrees that it's a good thing and we still can't get there we've accomplished a proof of concept but not systemic change and we're learning that we need to learn more about systemic change and how to really go to scale and influence a lot of schools and a lot of kids and a lot of teachers before it's too late.
1: Is that happening? Does the initiative continue? The initiative definitely continues. One very specific thing that we know that we need to do is find some kind of dedicated resource that can sort of, you know, look at the library, articulate pathways through it for district leaders, for site leaders, for curriculum instruction people, and Match make between the resources created and the expertise out there and the needs of districts as we sort of do do outreach so that we can provide reasonable technical assistance to help people get going. I just uh, want to thank you
0: both so much for, first of all, for the great work that you're doing in the world and for all that you have provided in the form of resources and leadership to educators around the world. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for taking the time to be here and share it all with our listeners today.
1: Thank you, Christy. Thank you for recognizing the effort.
2: Thanks so much, Christy. Really, really appreciate your providing a platform for us to share some of these resources.
0: All resources for the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative are available to any educator anywhere in the world through the links in the episode notes, along with 10 strands, the Lawrence Hall of Science, and lots of additional reading and research. So many links. You could go on an environmental education reading frenzy. In two weeks, you'll hear from Sharon Gamson-Danks at Green Schoolyards, the other partner and host organization for the Outdoor Learning Initiative Library don't miss it. We also want to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education. Julie Meltzer, Maine's Curriculum Leader of the Year, tells us that the Institute for Humane Education's solutionary approach deepens learning, engages students, and gives them both agency and optimism as they address the challenges they care about most. Preparing students to become solutionaries also, reconnects teachers with the reason they entered the profession to make the world a better place. The Institute for Humane Education's resources are also available in Spanish, French, Mandarin, and Arabic. Learn more about the Institute for Humane Education and its resources simply by visiting them at edcuration.com. Click the Let's Talk button to access free resources and learn more about their professional development opportunities. We hope you found this episode helpful and inspiring, and if so, please rate, review, follow, share, and join us again next week on the EdCuration Podcast where we're reshaping learning.